Welcome back to the Clinic Coffee Podcast. This is episode six. Uh, Clinic Coffee is a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinic Coffee provider at clinicalathlete.com. And don't forget the, about the Clinic Coffee Forum, where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas, resources, and all of the above related to sports med, rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or be listed on the directory, details and applications can be found on the website, clinicalathlete.com. And this podcast can also be found on that website and on YouTube and iTunes, where we always appreciate nice reviews. And then one more quick announcement. Clinical Athlete was uh, recently officially accepted as a BOC-approved continuing education provider, which means that all certified athletic trainers can earn CEU credit at our courses. So that's pretty cool. The next one coming up is December 9th in Milpitas, California, which is the San Jose, San Francisco Bay area. Uh, and that course is called the Scientific Principles of Sports Rehab. And it's led by our very own Derek Miles and Michael Ray. So you can find details about that course at clinicalathlete.com. So my name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. I'm joined by my usual Previously mentioned co-hosts, one of which is one of which is Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. He's the owner of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic and CrossFit Callisto uh, in Harrisonburg. So, how you doing, Mike? Hey, what's up, Quinn? Uh, no, not a whole lot, man. We're also joined by Derek Miles, a doctor of physical therapy for Stanford Children's Health. What's up, Derek? Morning, Quinn. Morning, and. Today, we're also joined by special guest and doctor of chiropractic, William Brady, who is the founder and president of Integrated Diagnosis, which is an educational program for healthcare providers. So first of all, Dr. Brady, thank you for being on the podcast. And then second, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and also Integrative Diagnosis? Sure thing. Guys, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today and have a good, uh, good discussion. As to the background of integrative diagnosis, I started it just about 11 years ago because I found graduating as a chiropractor, uh, valedictorian of my class, I still didn't feel like I had good diagnostic skills and that treatment was basically by the provider's choice. There's no standardization to what you should do even in school, getting a doctorate degree, they're like, sure, you want to do this technique, do it. You want to do this one, do it. They're all great. We're all friends. So in practice, I found that to be very frustrating from an education standpoint. And then moving into practice, there were a lot of things you were told or taught that didn't turn out to be true in the real world, as school often does, right? So I developed integrative diagnosis to get to the nuts and bolts of something that's objective and reproducible on the diagnostic end, and then something that is uh, efficacious, durable, and effective on the treatment end. That's, uh, that's the mission. And we do that with an educational program that trains providers to uh, pay closer attention to certain things and give them diagnostic criteria which is pretty rare in the musculoskeletal world. And we also teach treatment programs. So it's a, it's a total complete program for uh, clinical excellence. Uh, so instead of the normal technique model. And so a big reason that we wanted to get Dr. Brady on the show is to kind of go into a further depth on a couple topics. 
in regards to pain and diagnosis that stemmed from a, a blog that Mike wrote on the logicofrehab.com, which is a website that he and Derek kind of tag team together to, uh, to dissect certain topics in, in rehab. And the blog was called Pain Science Guiding the Path. And that can be found on thelogicofrehab.com. And then an interesting discussion ensued and debate kind of grew in the, in the comments section between Mike, Dr. Brady, and one or two others. So we thought it'd be a great idea to kind of continue that here. And on going, continuing on to what you were just saying, William, is that you're, I've heard you say in the past that your perspective is one of which is that diagnosis in particular of musculoskeletal disorders is, uh, one of the main I guess, weaknesses of, of healthcare professionals or maybe rehab professionals. Um, and that was, you know, one of the main reasons that you started integrative diagnosis. Can you talk a little bit about what those weaknesses are and how they can be strengthened? And that might tie in to our ensuing discussion on pain as it equates to the biopsychosocial model. Perfect. Yes. Uh, There's a lot, there's a lot to do. So to shorten that up, you don't have a good diagnosis if it isn't reproducible from provider to provider. So right now, if you have low back pain and you see one doctor or another doctor or even 10 people with the same degree, you're probably coming out of there with a very different diagnosis and a very different treatment set and therefore a very different result. So it's upside down. The diagnosis and treatment a patient gets depends more on who they see than what's actually wrong with them. And that's just objectively a nightmare. That's part of why healthcare is a mess for musculoskeletal disorders, and it's insanely expensive. Because when you see one person, they haven't ruled something out other than just doing that thing they did didn't work at that particular place and time. Where in medicine, Granted, it's a lot easier to just take a blood test, look at numbers on a page and go, oh, you have this condition. And nine out of 10 providers or 10 out of 10 would agree that you have that thing. So we have a far more difficult task. But the root of it is it's not reproducible. It's not standardized. So that's the nuts and bolts of the problem. That's why so many people disagree about treatment. That's why people disagree about what the source of your pain is. Uh, and people come at it from wildly different perspectives. Now, everybody is the same thing. They should see the same thing in a perfect world. In your in your view, we, we, when we talk about the biopsychosocial model of pain, are you looking at it from a from a diagnosis perspective? Are you looking at it as a dichotomy of ty- trying to differ- differentiate between the bio and the psychosocial? How do you integrate that model into your diagnosis system? Yeah, right. Fantastic. Uh, and there's no there's no short answer because it really depends on the patient. And there's not even a flow chart. It just requires expert clinical judgment. So one of the first things we do is in our history, we've got seven first order things that are super important that everybody takes in the history. But what we do is look at those and break them down. So we've got this information, what's provocative, what's palliative. So we're looking for first and foremost, the bio part and the biopsychosocial. If I can find a tissue in pathology that is dysfunctional, damaged, 
degenerated, inflamed, painful, then they have a really good candidate for the primary source of your problem. And that will generally be reverse compatible with that history. So it will fit. When you load, if you have a shoulder problem, when you load your shoulder, that hurts. If you have shoulder pain and you turn your head, more likely coming from your neck. We do that on a sophisticated level. But we are looking for a tissue and pathology for that to make sense. Again, in the examination and in the history, if we find that that's not lining up, the way we'd like it to, or with our prior experience, or if somebody has multiple pain regions or has high anxiety, that's when we'll start opening the additional categories. And that's where the biopsychosocial piece comes in. You know, it's very different if I've got someone in my office who's in tears and they're like, oh, my life is a mess. This has been killing me. My pain started right after I got divorced. That's a very different picture than a guy who's like, yeah, I mean, everything's cool. It's just when I bench press 200, the front of my shoulder hurts. So that paints the bookends for you as to how that might start to either suspect a specific discrete tissue problem or suspect that there's a lot more overlying the symptom presentation. Mike, in the blog, you, the, the blog is, I don't want to I'll have you kind of explain this, but the blog is more centered around um, how to integrate the biopsychosocial model and not, obviously not discounting tissue quality, but uh, understanding the psychosocial effect of acute and chronic pain. Can you go into that a little bit and maybe ducktail off of what William is saying in regards to looking for the bio first or vice versa? Yeah, I think if we're to synthesize this down as best as we can, what we see in the research literature is there's a bit of a dichotomy that's getting created between acute versus chronic pain development. Um, I think for the majority uh, of the population as us as clinicians, we understand acute pain pretty well. Uh, that some type of injury occurred to the area within a particular time frame that's relevant to why we're seeing the patient in our office. There's some type of evidence of direct acute tissue damage to the area. Um, so we have some type of identifiable MOI. So in those cases, pain tends to make sense. And we tend to look at those cases as what we would call a bottom-up approach to the treatment of pain. Um, and, and this isn't always the case. You know, We have great examples that people can have acute traumas to an area and not experience pain. Uh, because it is very subjective to the person and we know that pain primarily or solely gets um, um, demonstrated in the brain and expressed in the mind by the person. On the flip side of that with chronic pain, what we see is the research literature is uh, stating that, that usually, and, and this isn't just research literature, it's also the International Association of Pain, states that if it's occurring for longer than three months, um, some say three, some say six, the majority says three, then that what we're seeing is that that chronicity of pain is exceeding what we would consider normal physiological healing parameters for an issue. Um, and there's no readily identifiable MOI for why the person's seeing us. So what we're continuously seeing is it's less and less likely to actually be dealing with any um, acute tissue damage or any type of pathological issue uh, with the tissue at that time uh, for why the person is possibly experiencing pain. I don't say that it doesn't have anything to do with it. I say it has little to do with it, and, and that's pretty well supported in the research currently. We have a lot of different studies that demonstrate asymptomatic issues that we consider as pathologies, ready identifiable on MRI and X-ray and ultrasound, and yet these patients are uh, asymptomatic. So that it kind of throws a wrench into the whole wheel of looking at this as completely or predominantly a biological-based issue. Derek, what are your thoughts on 
on making the biocycle social model a dichotomy per se or an integrated uh, concept? Well, typically, anytime you try and turn things into dichotomy, you, you give yourself way too much of a black and white worldview where most things are in gray. Um, there's a, a few parts to this. One, I think to start off on our splitting hairs of semantics conversation, I'm sure is going to ensue. I, I think there is a large difference between causing and contributing. And we can look at a lot of things and say, yes, this might contribute to the issue, but it's a lot more difficult to say with certainty that it causes an issue. And I think just in general, certainty in and of itself as a clinician is something that we should be really cautious about. Because normally, as soon as we start thinking our algorithm, our treatment method, our whatever works, we start exposing ourselves to not looking elsewhere and realizing we may be missing some of the picture. So, Dr. Brady, when you describe a, a pathological tissue, and that's kind of where you're going first as your as your first tier, are you suggesting that the tissue is the is the pain generator, or are you suggesting that that potentially pathological tissue can may predispose the person to perceiving the output of pain. Are you, are you looking at the pathological tissue as the input or the output? Uh, primarily the input. So, and I agree with what uh, you guys are saying here, this can get into details. Uh, I would, to take an example, I'd say, imagine your nervous system is functioning perfect. What's what does that mean? How do we how do we classify perfect? What's the criteria for that? Yes, so it's if you have so say you've got tissue, you have the whether it's healthy or unhealthy, we can get in here, right? But you have your tissue status, and your nervous system is to receive, transmit, process information, partly based on that status of the tissue. So if I sprain my ankle, my tissue status is degraded. It's weak. It's inflamed. It's painful. The nervous system transmits that information to my brain. And has an output arm that says, you know what, Dr. Brady, I really need you to limp right now. Right? That's an appropriate level of pain for the tissue damage. And the goal of the pain is to unload the damage to give it a chance to heal. Would you so say that, that would be my loop to answer your question for a perfectly functioning system? That the pain is in light of the peripheral tissue status. Does someone with depression have a perfectly functioning nervous system? Does someone with depression have a perfectly functioning nervous system? No, they'd likely be sensitized. Well, but now we're already in confounding factors, so it's not just as simple as spraining your ankle. Well, I, um, I didn't suggest it was. I painted a bookend to say that if we're trying to break this down into pieces, it'll be good to take one piece at a time. So my, my point, and I, maybe I should state this a different way, if I'm looking at the nervous system as receiving and transmitting information based on the status of the peripheral tissue, that's one of its roles. So peripheral nervous system then? No, the entire nerve. So the nervous system, you have peripheral tissue that's innervated. So those neurons will depolarize when that tissue is moving or damaged. So William, let me ask, is it... Is it your opinion that the tissue damage is directly, the amount of tissue damage that's uh, occurred or incurred is directly relatable to the intensity of pain that the person experiences? No. 
Okay. Because that's kind of what it, I, I'm receiving from you right now. So maybe I'm misunderstanding. So we're getting way off track for this. Um, Clint, what was your initial question? I want to kind of anchor to. Oh, I think it was what are pain, what is input and what is output? Is um, the tissue, the tissue's role, the signals that the tissues are playing, their role in the person experiencing pain? And the, if, if it's a one-to-one correlation, I think is a kind of a relatable question or whether other factors can have a bearing because that is now that we're talking the biopsychosocial model of pain. Yes. So, so I'd say as my foundation, the nervous system is relaying the status of the peripheral tissue. That's its, its purpose, is to unload that tissue, to prevent loading on the mechanical compromised structure. And yes, you can overlay that with depression. Yes, you can overlay that where people have a small tissue insult and perceive it as a 10 out of 10. You can have people with a huge tissue insult that don't perceive pain at all. And I'd paint those as more edge cases or at least lower percentage cases. I think the majority of people with a musculoskeletal complaint have a pain level that's somewhat proportional to their problem. So what would you say in reference to, say, the uh, new definition that's been proposed, and it was proposed in my blog by Williams and Craig, that says that we can actually have just the potential of tissue damage, but the subjective experience of pain? Yeah, if and it's, and it's an awesome evolutionary uh, scenario to get someone to pull back from something dangerous before they're damaged. So if there's something you can perceive as dangerous, you may perceive that as pain before tissue damage occurs. But I would say that's not what's walking into your office. You don't think. So if I have my patients who come in and and part of their pain experience is a fear of not being able to play with their grandkids or fear of being able to walk around the grocery store, it's not necessarily the pain they're currently experiencing. It's the fear of that pain influencing their life in the future. Sure. And I would ask, where did that pain come from? Why is that their concern? So, but you you think that's directly related to a tissue structure? It's related to something that's happened, but I would say the odds are, if you're worried about your knee hurting walking around the grocery store, you probably have personal experience with your knee hurting. And I would agree with that, but uh, my case would be that it doesn't necessarily correlate with having a tissue pathology or the degree of t- tissue pathology. Well, it sounds like, William, you mentioned that the experience, if you're walking around with knee pain, you've had that for, let's say, several years, you've, you have, yeah. you've had experience with knee pain. Are you, yes. and you're, it sounds like you're saying that potentially the, ex, the experience or knowing that you are experienced and then potentially then projecting that fear to future experiences has a bearing on their pain. So is that not integrating the psychosocial aspect? No, I'm, I'm absolutely saying they're integrated. But what I would say is if I had a patient, to bring it back to a patient, if you came into me and said, my knee's been hurting for six years, it hurts when I walk, it feels better when I sit, 
the pain is right here in the front of the knee. I'm 55 years old. I've played soccer my whole life. I've had multiple injuries. We can get into all of that. I'd say the first thing I should do is a physical examination of your knee. Does it flex? Does it extend? Can you bear weight? Is there a physical tissue degeneration restriction pathology that is causing your present symptom? Which then, if you are having a fear, maybe that fear is just number one, totally appropriate based on your present scenario. If you are catastrophizing and you're overly concerned, then I would need to know where that came from. There's probably a, again, a psychosocial element to that. You know, if one of your parents was in a wheelchair because their knee got blown up, then you're probably more likely to have that fear. I'm saying clinically, I don't see a lot of fear that's disproportionate from the problem. I wouldn't start by telling that patient, you know what, everything's going to be okay. I'm going to do the examination. If the tissue's clean, then we'll have the talk about where this is coming from. That's how I split up the bio and the psychosocial. What if the tissue's not clean? How do we well, a little bit better of a question, how do we define clean versus unclean? I mean, that automatically invokes the dichotomy that's getting formed. I'd say it invokes a zero to 10 scale and they're going to fall somewhere in between there. I wouldn't say it's a dichotomy. Um, does your knee flex? It's a basic physical exam procedure that's massively underutilized. So we teach and test and measure this range of motion where if you're in a supine position, just can your knee come down and flex fully? Can your heel touch your butt full range, pain-free with ease? What if they don't need full range of motion? Well, I mean, what is... What is full range? How are we defining that parameter? Yeah. And, and let's get into that conversation because it's, I think would agree, basic human function. If I can bring my arms up, touch my head and bring them back down, I'd say that's full range. And if I can do that pain-free with ease, my shoulders are healthier than if I can come to 90 or split the difference and have symptoms. But what if I can do that and not have symptoms? Is the tissue clean or unclean? There are different levels. If you don't have good function. So if you have, the more the range is limited, the worse you have something blocking it that shouldn't be there. Because the range isn't what you and think it should be. No symptoms, for sure, because something's inflamed, something's irritated. So we, if we want to bring this back to the knee patient so we don't get too far distracted, uh, so what we do is measure knee range of motion and we record what is your range did you have symptoms where were they we interpret that bio part that information because if this reproduces the same symptoms you have when you walk or you squat and i get in there and palpate and treat and improve your range and improve your symptom well i don't think anyone here is trying to argue that not to check range of motion and I think some of the misunderstanding out of this may be your overemphasis or perception of overemphasis on the bio and your perception of our overemphasis on the psychosocial. I'd agree with that. All of us fully buy into you do a full objective exam. However, that being said, it's also being cautious of the fact that there are some correlations or lack of correlations. If we look at a lot of our special tests, they suck. If we look at a lot of our ability to palpate whatever structure you want to talk about, it sucks. So it's walking into it with a little more caution instead of saying, I'm going to identify some soft tissue structural pathology because 
Yes, it can contribute, but as far as it being a one-to-one correlation, likely not. And if you look at most interventions we have to offer, we can't change tissue structure, and especially in the span of time with which we typically see patients. So if we're not really able to change tissue structure with a lot of our interventions, then what else can we really change? And most of that is disposition and behavior. So I want to back that up one second because I agree. Tissue structure, you know, I'm not going to do an MRI of your knee and then an MRI three years from now and have the thing look better. So maybe some plus or minus some inflammation. What I'd say, what kind of effect other than structure is load? And what is function change loading in the tissue? So if I restore range and restore strength, I've unloaded a damaged tissue. And I want to start my bio part of my assessment with that. So I'm not overemphasizing structure. I'm going to put it in its place because it gets underemphasized. I'm not going to overemphasize function, but those two things are super important in the musculoskeletal system to have good structure and good function. How do you define good structure and good function? Good functions, full range, pain-free, with ease, and then any flavor of gray beneath that. Good structure would be all of the normal metrics used for diagnosing osteoarthritis, cartilage tears, so joint space distance. Uh, you know, There's disc grading systems. There's the Perfman scale for disc, where it basically says you have this level of structure. Regardless of symptom, you can gauge structure. You can measure it. Dr. Brady, to what degree do you believe that we can influence structural tissue as clinicians with non-surgical clinicians with our hands? You mentioned the bio at the beginning of the show, an example being pathological tissue. And then you mentioned that we're probably not going to change the tissue, but we can increase function and decrease pain, which I agree with. To what extent can we affect the tissue as non-surgical professionals? It would depend on the tissue. So my examples were cartilage. So if I'm looking at articular cartilage or meniscus cartilage, I'm going to have little impact on that to date. I can have an impact. What we always say in the system here is that we can slow down that degeneration if we're able to unload it with treatment and also advice. What do you mean by unloaded? If you were to measure the load in a desk, say you put a transducer in there that could measure load. When you, if you sit in flexion, you have higher load than if you sit in neutral. So I mean just the physical force through the tissue based on number of repetitions, amount, time. Well, doesn't everything we have saying in order for tissue to heal itself, it's advantageous to load it? I'd put load on a bell curve where there's this beautiful thing in the middle and then there's too much on one side and too little on the other. I don't disagree for a second, but I think an ambiguous use of the word load implies that. Well, I, yeah, no, so here's what I will tell you that with, and it's not like I can put a transducer in someone and go, oh, you've got 50 pounds, it should be 40. But what I do know is when a patient comes into me degenerated and in pain, then I take a history and odds are this person has way too much load. So when it is the bio, their load is high based on their function and their activity choices. It sounds what like do you mean degenerated. What do I mean degenerated? Pick yeah, a, say that again. Pick a joint. Like well, degeneration is going to occur. It's just the degradation of the tissues. How are you? How are you identifying that? Are you shooting an image on it, or what are you doing? You can do it clinically. You can get an image. 
So it's going to depend on the patient. I'm not sending everyone out for images right away. But if you're a 55 year old and your shoulder, you've got a painful arc through this range of your shoulder and it hurts to press on the AC joint, well, that's a clinical diagnosis that that thing is at a minimum inflamed and probably degenerated. If it's enlarged, I'm happy to make that diagnosis. I don't need to shoot an x-ray. I could. Well, I mean, you pretty much could have stopped it asking how old they were because at that point there's a probability that something is off out of it. Now, the fact that it's symptomatic doesn't necessarily correlate with there being inflammation. We don't have any good studies that really show, especially in the degenerative side of things, that there is a big inflammatory response that goes on for a while. Okay. Yeah, it sounds more like what the evidence currently shows is what we could say is that Perhaps at the age of 55, you have some normative aging degeneration that's occurring that most of us will see if we follow a population long enough. We're going to see osteoarthritic changes. We're going to see stuff like that occurring. And it doesn't necessarily mean they need to be symptomatic. It means that they're probably could be asymptomatic, but then perhaps they did something that caused them to become symptomatic. But then there's going to be a standard regression to the mean after that. It's really unlikely that just because someone has, let's say, osteoarthritic changes, that they need to be symptomatic. It doesn't work that way. That's, that's currently not what the research shows. And I completely agree with that. The difference is I'm reverse engineering what's wrong with my patient, not forward-looking at an entire population. I completely agree. The vast majority of people with any kind of degeneration in the musculoskeletal system are asymptomatic. But I take it a step further, is that we all naturally reduce our load to a point where it's going to be underneath a symptom threshold. So as we age, we do less. If I put the same level of degeneration that's in an 80-year-old into a 20-year-old crossfitter, that person's probably going to have a lot of pain. I mean, I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that because a lot of it, it still is related to like your base activity and your training history. And, you know, if you did took your average 20-year-old to have him train with Jack LaLanne when he was 85 years old, my money's still on Jack LaLanne. Like, you can't necessarily say just because you fall into a certain age bracket, your tissue is more tolerant to whatever. We know there's a higher likelihood that that tissue is degenerated as you get older, but it's still a low correlation between having that degeneration and being symptomatic, and that's across pretty much all joints. Yes, and I would say that's because that as people age, they're going to reduce their activity. If you have a degenerated joint, you're going to load that less than a healthy joint through your own choices. When that thing hurts, you're saying there's, you're, hurting is because you've moderated your load. You're saying they're self-selecting. Yes. I mean, we all have patients that do this, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I used to run 20 miles a week. I loved it. My knees hurt a whole bunch. So I started running 10. We have those patients, but we also have the ones that say, yeah, my back hurts and I figured if I did more squats, I could get out of it. So it goes the other way as well. That's, that's your confronter population. Yeah. And I'd say that brings us right back to the bell curve. If you were sedentary, you certainly should be exercising. And if strengthening your back with back squats makes you stronger and you feel better, hey, fantastic. So if, if I'm to understand, I want to make sure I'm on the same page with you with this. If I'm to understand you correctly, you're saying people are self-selecting, not loading the tissue. So when they come in to see you, I'm assuming you're going to help them load the tissue. And then the ones that are overloading the tissue, you're going to help them unload. I mean, to me, this sounds like behavior change. It sounds like we're saying the same thing. 
as part of it, yes. So my unloading is absolutely it's 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 two things, and I completely agree. Behavior change, which is what we call load management. How do I get you to not, you know, run six marathons a year if your knees degenerated and painful? But also, how do I improve your function to where your your capacity is improved? So, how do you advocate we do that? Improve capacity by improving function. Okay, so um, that's kind of that's, like circular, though. Like, I, give, give yeah, me. So, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. In one in the article I sent over, the deep gluteal syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's the sciatic nerve entrapment. When you have that entrapment, it limits your straight leg race, which is a functional limitation. And it prevents good motion of those tissues. That's going to load your back abnormally. It's going to load your knee abnormally. It's going to create pain when you sit and often when you move. So that's an instance where we get in there, perform tests, identify the adhesion in there, break that down and restore that brain. I'm going to, I'm going to stop. I'm going to back up right there. Cause I think before we get into that, I kind of want to come full circle. So it, And you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like we're all in agreement that every individual patient has their own load tolerance. And that can be as as an organism, that can be at the local tissue level, a load tolerance to load is load. Um, If if we feel that they are surpassing their load tolerance chronically, that's either causing, uh, just causing symptoms or decreasing function, then we change behavior is part of that. And we, I think we all agree that, and it goes the other way too. If we feel like the tissues are becoming less resilient to load because they're not doing enough, we can work to change behavior the other way. It sounds like to me, perhaps Michael and Derek are saying it's, yes, certainly we're going to try to increase function and decrease, uh, you know, sensitization or symptoms, increase confidence and, and, um, control, but that's, regardless of degeneration, whereas, or, uh, or the bio, the degeneration can maybe predispose the person to sensitizing sooner, but maybe not. Whereas maybe you, William are saying it perhaps has a stronger influence. The bio side maybe has a stronger influence than just maybe predisposing. I think that's a perfect summary. Okay. So we're there. And now Now we're going to shift to a specific example because hopefully that will give context to the listeners. Dr. Brady, you mentioned a specific diagnosis, um, gluteal nerve entrapment or peripheral nerve entrapment of of the the sciatic nerve. And you reference a paper and I'm just going to read the title for people. It's the endoscopic treatment of sciatic nerve entrapment slash deep gluteal syndrome. And that's Hal Martin et al. from 2011. Now, you're using that as an example of a specific diagnosis. Can you give us a rundown of that? Di- you don't have to kind of summarize the paper. You can if you want to, but how that diagnosis is, uh, how your clinical practice influences a diagnosis like that beyond just behavior change. And I think we're going to be getting into kind of the manual therapy side of things a bit. Yes. So yeah, I, I chose this paper because it's representative of a really common uh, symptom. You know, posterior hip thigh pain is super common. His patients all had pain for long periods of time exceeding the 12 weeks. And what the surgeon finds is there's a, a structural and functional impediment that is nerve entrapment. 
So there's physical adhesions binding the nerve to the surrounding tissue. So as purely diagnostically, you can look up on PubMed any nerve in the body. I've got one here with accessory nerve. They're just all over the place. You get surgeons cut people open and find fibrous adhesions all over. So this is a source, an underdiagnosed problem that creates a functional issue that creates pain that can certainly be chronic. So that's why uh, this paper to, to discuss. And he happens to correct it surgically because he can go in and put a camera, and this one came with a video, so you look at that video, there's a camera on that nerve. He goes in and cuts those adhesions, restores blood flow to the nerve and proper mobility of the nerve. So it's harder to argue uh, this type of evidence. Well, no, it's actually pretty easy to argue this type of evidence because if we look at most outcomes for carpal tunnel or, you know, your typical nerve entrapments, they're not that good. And even if we look at this paper, it, it's a case series and they report 35 patients, but only 23 of them do they have follow-up with. So that automatically breeds a few questions on how good their actual outcomes were. And th this gets into, and I'm sure we're going to have to explicitly define what an adhesion is. And yes, if you have some fibrous tissue around, I, I will fully concede there could be something to that. But in the same token, if we look at our sensitivity and specificity of a straight leg raise, it's 0.52 and 0.89 in some of the papers we look at. So still not crushing it as a special test. And if you look at the cohort here, you know, if we're going to talk about our exemplary patient walking in, 20% of the cohort had had prior surgery and 20 patients had had a big trauma out of this. Now, this is a little bit, I would argue, different representation than Joe Blow walking off the street. Now, here we start getting into some of just the frame we look through. And if everything we start diagnosing is an adhesion, we need to make sure that, one, adhesion in the way we're going to define it exists, two, it actually correlates with the symptoms, and three, whatever intervention we're providing shows true efficacy in changing that. And here, it's interesting to me that you would choose this paper because the, the surgeons say a few things in this paper that I found interesting. One was there was no correlation with them finding these fiber structures in any type of imaging, which means yeah. we're not really good at finding them along the way. Yes. Two, they talk about how a lot of times they couldn't even really excise these fibrous adhesions through the positioning of it. So I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how we would do that with some type of external manual therapy versus what they couldn't do in there with the scalpel itself. And I guess third, my question would be, if we can change it that easy, why couldn't they have just, while they were under anesthesia, done whatever manual technique and just showed us it dissolving away? Uh, sure. That's a ton of questions. Um, so if I can back up, because I want to address them, they're awesome questions. Um, all the way back to straight leg raise, as far as sensitivity and specificity of the test, all orthopedic tests suffer from this problem and it's part of the training that we talked about earlier is we like to have one test where we go, well, that's the test. And it either tests for one thing that you have or you don't. And we know the world is more complicated. So when I use straight leg raise, it's what's the range? What are your symptoms? What's their intensity? What's their location? And then we add in Braggard's test for neural tension. We add dorsiflexion and end range. 
So if I have a limited straight leg raise and anything less than 90, we just grade it accordingly. So if you say you've got 70 degrees and I do Braggard's test, that's, and it increases your posterior thigh or posterior hip symptom. That's a strong indicator that there's neural tension. According to the research, it's not. Yeah. What research says it isn't? So the straight leg raise, according to this paper, has dorsiflexion written into it. So if that's the case, you know, you take your asymptomatic population, you start doing this, you're going to get a lot of people who have some posterior thigh symptoms out of it. Yes. So we're getting into, and as you're saying, the patient selection here. So a lot of people are walking around, I'd say even the majority of people are walking around with a limited straight leg raise and dorsiflexion increases their symptom. And I'd say there's some level of neural tension in there. So, so what does it matter? If it's asymptomatic, why does it matter? I'm not saying it does yet. Yet. Well, what, is, what does it, that mean? It may never matter to that person, but when we deal with the patient, I'm looking at where you are. I'm not. This isn't a public health discussion where I'm trying to determine what's going to be dangerous later. I'm trying to determine what's wrong now. You've already filtered yourself to say, I need to spend time and money to get this fixed. So we're already dealing with that segmented population who comes in. I would not dream of doing this on a healthy population. Yeah, but because, because they've self-selected to come seek out treatment, there's already the predisposition to have a therapeutic illusion of the clinician trying to diagnose something and make something out to be that doesn't need to be treated, which is kind of sounds like what is happening here is this, this idea. Yeah, well, let me get back to, because I, I want to get to, you asked a whole bunch of questions in there. And I'd like to have the opportunity to address those questions. So I don't look at the straight leg raise, the sensitivity and specificity for this population. It's a data point among a bunch of data points. And I think things way too often try to get boiled down to, well, if there's nothing on imaging, then you don't have a problem. I think that's a mistake. As you said, the adhesions don't show up on imaging. So anyone that says you're fine because your structure's fine uh, that's way too, way too big of a statement to, to be accurate. So the papers that you had given us regarding adhesions, though, were cellular papers. We're talking on an order of 200 micrometers. So this is well below anything you could ever palpate or we could ever really perceive. So the, one, the ones in here you perceive, he sees them with the camera. He cuts them with his equipment. Well, but now we're talking once again a case series where two thirds of the cohort was lost to follow up. So it's really hard to say you had great outcomes out of that. Yeah. So that's a different question: is outcome. What the only thing I'd be trying to say with this paper is this surgeon is finding adhesions between these structures that shouldn't be there, and when he goes in with these people and cuts them out, he gets an improvement in blood flow, an improvement in range, and an improvement in symptom. Yeah, 21 patients prior to the site. I understand they're filtered. All research has inclusion and exclusion criteria. No, this this isn't inclusion-exclusion. They did this procedure on 35 patients, and only 23 of them did they have follow-up criteria on. So there's definitely a selection bias out of that. Yes, and 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 I would say that's part of any clinical research is people drop out. People move. People don't want to go back to the doctor. I don't know. And I, yes, it compromises the result. But out of the 20 people that are left, I'm just here's here's one of the overriding principles that I wrestle with all the time is, is that people are say that adhesion isn't real. It's not a thing. 
And if it were real, it takes 2,000 pounds to break. That right now is current flavor of this conversation, not our conversation here yeah. today. That's what a lot of people believe. I, I think, like, let me stop you right there before we get too far into this. Like, we aren't saying adhesions don't exist. There's solid evidence for intra-abdominal, intrauterine, post-surgical encounters, as well as in the hand, that we can have formations of tissue that probably or shouldn't be connected um, and that become connected. The question becomes, though, for us, I think the biggest question is, is you're giving a surgical example of how this adhesion is being released. How are you doing this yourself in your office? How is this clinically relevant to you? Well, and I'll, I'll follow up on that and just say the series of, sorry, William, I know you've got like still got 50 questions in the queue, but, and to follow up on that, the series of special tests, we could argue sensitivity, specificity, but regardless, you create familiar symptoms with the tests are you then saying what to mike's question how do you go about then addressing or saying that is an adhesion from a diagnostic mm -hmm. standpoint first okay yep so in my system what we're going to do with the diagnosis is look at first of all the history pieces this is the same way we're all trained to do it so you can't shortcut it with one test or two tests so in your history does your, is your symptom produced when these tissues are loaded? So sitting is a great way to put some tension on the sciatic nerve and just even physically compress it. So if it's already somewhat compromised, so say you can sit for 30 minutes and then you got to kind of roll off to one side. There's a lot of things that could be, this is one of them. So if I get in there and you have no low back problem, I do a low back examination, your low back looks great. I get in there and do a straight leg raise and it's limited, say by half, you're at 45 degrees. I do Braggard's test that reproduces your symptom. So your symptoms are generally worse with these specific provocative things. They're generally better when you lay down or you rest. And I've done my range test that reproduced your symptom. Then I'm gonna get in there, allow you on your side and palpate the sciatic nerve. And how we do this, you locate the sciatic nerve and we're literally gonna bow it laterally. And it's exactly what this gentleman did in the video, only he had a probe. So I take my thumb, put it right against the sciatic nerve, and I'm gonna see if I can challenge that sideways. And when it's adhered, it doesn't move nearly as much as a healthy nerve. What's you the reliability on that? What's that? Do you, do you have a paper showing that you can palpate a sciatic nerve or that any of your method is valid out of this? I don't. I don't have a paper. I've got I've got reproducible clinical experience. Yeah, so well, could you? This is opinion, though. Yeah, this okay, is all anecdotal. If I were a pharmaceutical company, I would have uh, I'd have this research done already. Why a pharmaceutical company? You should. We are all held to the same. We're all held to the same standard of evidence that's required in order to have this method put into place. The standard is based on a lot of things. Uh, what I would say is the reason why I mentioned pharmaceutical, if I had their budget, this would be done. So I you're don't. relying upon, uh, so how do you account for, for your own personal bias and logical fallacies that occur when you're implementing such techniques? Because that's why we have research in place is so we can level the playing field and remove bias, but your own personal bias is likely gonna sway your outcomes. Well, what I'm doing is physically finding the problem and we can debate well, you that, know that you but have no way of, of demonstrating that and a manual and no manual medicine person could even go to work tomorrow well that's so, an entirely debatable discussion as well i mean but yes it is what, yes, what, it what, is. What, you know about palpation 
even there are papers looking at PSIS palpation that show the iterator reliability is like 0.26, and that's a right. massive landmark. It is. This is where it's been studied, and we're supposed yeah. to just take your word that your method is reliable and valid? Yeah. So let me, let me explain it, and then we can all agree or disagree on whatever we want. That's the problem. The training is so poor that you can't even find bony landmarks. That doesn't mean palpation is a bad idea. It means you guys stink at it, and your training is terrible if you can't find a bony landmark, right? That's basics. So the, so the saying, hold on. I just want to clarify. You just said my palpation skills suck. Not yeah. your personally. Well, you I mean, said you guys. No, yeah. no. You just said you guys. I mean, you guys will be myself included. Right. So even yeah, if we're going to use well, that as a broad-based term, you're saying the people who conduct research on this, all the clinicians they include in every single study, and they look at iterator reliability, they completely suck. They just picked the wrong clinicians for the studies. I'm saying their training isn't working. If Would you be willing to put up all of your integrative diagnosis certified clinicians into a study and see what their integrator reliability is? I would is? love to. I would love to. We do this all the time in small amounts. I'd love to do it. Why don't you publish those? I'm not a researcher. You can still have it published. Oh, Dr. Yep. Yeah, okay. Dr. Brennan. I'll, I'll put it on the list to do. I don't have it for you today. Well, I've, I've, and if you don't have it for us, it's hard for us to say it's anything beyond your opinion. Yeah, and then so your opinion also includes telling clinicians that their training is poor. That's your opinion against research. So look, let me, I mean, you're almost yeah. acting as a power of authority and then certifying clinicians under your method and as a profitable method without any evidence to substantiate it. Guys, we can do this as an attack or we can do this as the answering the questions. Well, please yeah, answer, so, the, answer the question. Please. A bunch of good questions earlier. Or we can just go back to the core research, which is where I wanted this to, to start anyway. So, so you asked about how I do this and how this is done. Right? So there are people who have adhesions, and you both say, well, sure, that's going to happen to some base level rate. And we find this, we treat it, we get improvements in range and improvements in symptoms the same way the surgeon did. We're just doing it non-surgical. Dr. Brady, I think the question, some of the confusion stems from if you're not looking at, a, if you're not looking inside of an arthroscope and you don't have a scalpel, you're, there is no, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that we can actually identify adhesions manually on the surface of the skin. And so who, what does a, so um, I could just stop there, but when you kind of described your method, what would then be a person who has sit pain and has all of the clinical signs, but then does not have an adhesion? How are you differentiating, differentiating that manually without visual inspection? So we diagnose adhesion by palpation and particularly nerve entrapment, whether that nerve is going to bow or tension. So we look at the range where would that nerve need to go? So the sciatic nerve is nearly 90 degrees to the deep external hip structures. So the deep external rotators. That creates quite a bit of friction. That's why that's there. The accessory nerve runs across deep to the trap across the rhomboid. Those are regions where you're going to get biomechanical loading and friction. That's why those areas tend to get adhesion. So this, we palpate those structures. We identify those limited ranges. If they have that, we can feel tension build in those tissues through that range and break that down. Can you identify the 
differences in structural deviations of the development of the sciatic nerve? Because there are deviations in how it pierces various muscular structures. Yep. Seven, nine percent of the time it'll go through the piriformis instead of under it. It'll stay separate instead of being one large trunk. Uh, those are all smaller outliers. What we're looking for is adhesion between that lateral portion of the nerve and the deep external hip rotators. But I want to get back to Quinn's question. What was, I don't, I don't know if I answered the first half of your question. Well, I think so, but I guess it's, how are you measuring the diagnostic accuracy without data? So we're measuring, well, we're collecting the data for that patient. We measure the range. Adhesion specifically though, because I get what you're saying is that we try to reproduce symptoms, we can change behavior, we can desensitize symptoms. And I think all of us would agree that manual therapy techniques, among many, many other things, can have short-term effects on pain perception and range of motion, but addressing the physical structure of adhesion. Yes. So what I'm saying is we're going to get, you have your limited range. We identify decreased mobility and adhesion via palpation. We treat that. Your range goes up and stays up. The correction is durable. That's what we base this on. If that is not durable, if it is reflexive, as a lot of manual therapy research shows, then it's worthless treatment. I think we're still having trouble on the palpating those. Yeah, no, and and guys, I totally get that. That you're not, it's not part of the manual therapy world to be good enough. William, I got to ask, man, because I mean, you're a Cairo, I'm a Cairo. How is this any different than subluxation? Because that's kind of what the, the evidence I would argue at this point is about equal for the diagnosis of either what you're saying. Adhesion and subluxation? Yeah, it's a similar construct. I mean, basically, it's anecdotal evidence of someone's thoughts that this thing exists that can be affected with some type of treatment. I mean, but there's no supportive evidence in the literature. I mean, I, I'm really sorry. If you've got the evidence. What I want to do is separate out diagnosis from treatment. So we have video and case series of this stuff getting stuck. So adhesion exists. You said earlier, sure. You can conceive of that. Well, no, it doesn't exist how you're diagnosing yeah. it. You, you are saying you're di- they diagnosed it in that case series with an Arthur screw. Are yes. you visually inspecting these areas on these patients? I'm diagnosing it with limited range and expert palpation. But there's so, no supportive evidence to say that that's a valid method of diagnostic criteria. You are saying you're diagnosing it, but there's zero supportive evidence unless you've got it. There's no evidence to support what you're doing. There's zero literature on that. I agree with that. And, well, and so when we were preparing for this, I sent you the article by Lutz looking at the history of low back pain. And what they looked at is basically throughout history, we've been a very guru-driven society where every time we get a new imaging tool, all of a sudden, that's what gives us our diagnosis. So as soon as we got x-rays, everything was facet arthropathy. As soon as we got MRIs, it was all discogenic. But the main theme out of the entire thing is we have been wrong repeatedly every time. And then all of a sudden, you know, history should be our teacher out of this. And if we're going to look at it from that, it's really hard for me to look at someone and say, trust my opinion on my ability to do something that's unsubstantiated in the literature. Your training is too poor to perceive it. And that's what I'm hearing out of this. And I, I think I, re- I really want to circle back to this because I, I want to be explicit in this point. This fibrous nerve entrapment from a trauma is not an adhesion. It is a fibrous nerve entrapment. 
what is being called an adhesion in the literature is typically related to cell communication, collagen cross-linking, and is never more than a few nanometers across. And if you look at your finest ability to palpate, there was just a recent study on Cairo students that showed two-point discrimination at 1.9 millimeters. So if you're talking 200 micrometers, you're talking an order of magnitude below anything you're ever going to be able to pick up, not to mention that all those structures are below skin and layers of other tissue. So, yes, there can be fibrous entrapment of a nerve. I have no problem with that concession. Okay. But to say that it's an adhesion is a farce because it's a complete misunderstanding of order to or oh, back to scale. Yep, so I, I would want to clear up the language on that. When this surgeon's in there, he actually put on the video, these are fibrous adhesions. So the language changes, but whatever you want to call it, it's a pile of, coll- pile of collagen that's sticking things together that should not be stuck together. So if adhesion is a nomenclature problem for you, I'd be happy to call it a fibrous band. Well, it's a nomenclature problem because it's in this instance, there is a nerve entrapment. But that doesn't mean we can extrapolate it out to every other instance where you're perceiving to palpate something. I'm saying there are remarkable similarities between what this surgeon is seeing and doing and what I am doing that have independently developed. And when you get a convergence onto a true principle like that, it's pretty remarkable. How do you know that it's converging? Because every, the way this guy tests the nerve with the probe and the straight leg race is exactly what we do, only I'm using my thumb in the straight leg race. And I'm breaking them down with my thumb where he's cutting them. But he's inside of the person and yeah, you so are outside of the person. Right? If I could put a scope in you while doing the treatment, I'd love to do that. I would have a lot more ability to believe what you are telling me as evidentially based if you were to do that. I mean, this, look, this gets that we can all believe in a various amounts of things. So what matters at the end of the day, especially for clinical practice, is what's the level of evidence that you're using to substantiate your treatments and your diagnostic abilities. You can choose to believe in adhesions all day long or fiber spans and your ability to palpate them. I think this point needs to be driven home very, very much so for the listeners that there is zero supportive evidence thus far in the literature to support that stance. True. And I would add to that all manual medicine is lacking any sort of substantiated basis when you look at any of the procedures that are commonly employed. It is not, however, anything close to saying this particular thing is wrong or that it doesn't exist. Because if I can take a little bit of a step here, in your original blog post, chronic pain is often referenced in the literature as pain lasting longer than 12 weeks and likely has little to do with actual tissue damage. All I intended to do today was draw a line between this sciatic nerve article and the fact that people can have chronic pain related to actual tissue damage that won't show up on MRI, X-ray, or imaging. Well, I think there's an issue calling it damage there. If the adhesion is developed and some type of adaptation has been occurring at this time, maybe something happened that created symptoms for sure. But there's also the plausibility on the flip side of what you're saying that this was an adaptable alteration to tissue structure over time. And adhesion didn't just form overnight. No, it has occurred over probably decades. Right, so there's a possibility that they adapted to it across those decades. So you would parse out the difference between tissue damage and tissue dysfunction. Or tissue adaptation. 
Yes. And so I want to back up because of what you read from Mike's blog, because this is an important point of semantics. And Mike said it is likely not contributing and likely and definitely not contributing are two different things. And part of this isn't to undermine a diagnosis because a diagnosis is perfectly fine from a pain treatment standpoint. Yet the ultimate question would be, how does it affect our treatment? And as you just said yourself, there is no evidence for most manual therapy. And if that is the case, I would argue that it doesn't affect my treatment as much. And the more I get hung up on a diagnosis, and we have evidence that says the more a clinician gets hung up on diagnosis, the more fear you put into a patient, and then we start creating problems. And trying to tell a patient, hey, you have adhesions, this is what's stopping you, all you're doing is giving a patient problems. And I should be in the business of giving solutions. Unless they have that problem. And that is brilliant because it puts it right on the dichotomy that we're having. I think if you miss, and there are problems in training and problems in skills. So if we go, well, we all aren't great at figuring out what's wrong. So my treatment is going to be to tell you this is pain. It's your nervous system. I personally think that's where this uh, extra weight on the psychosocial comes from. Is, your diagnostic criteria is unsupported. Like you're, I'm not going to be able to get past this point. Like you're saying, and, I, and you may not be able to, but I will tell you, follow me around for a day. I know that's crappy evidence. You sound like a standard chiropractor right, who's right. preaching the subluxation sermon from the mount. You know, like Amen. you're saying, come follow me around and anecdotally see what I do all day, and that may be sold to patients fairly easily. But for everyone else who wants to be evidence-based, that's going to be a very difficult sell. It's no more than snake oil salesmanship. Right. So what you do when you overcorrect to the evidence-based model is say, well, the tissue damage is highly unlikely, so let's talk about managing your perception instead of if there is a damage or problem in the tissue, addressing it. That's well, no, I, go, no, finish your thought. I apologize. That's it. That's exactly what the whole discussion is, uh, that the pain science is leaving out large sections of tissue problems. That's why we're coming at this as probably 90-10 flipped. No, I don't think it is at all. Yeah, I agree with Mike on this. I I think the pain science world is very aware of the biological factor in dealing with pain treatment. I think that what we're looking at, though, is it's becoming more and more difficult to call things pathologies as we're seeing in readily identifiable and asymptomatic populations. And so clearly, there's like I sent a study on this, the randomized controlled trial looking at exercise and radiofrequency, and we saw that when they went in and did denervations on what you would call as a pain driver based on what you've said thus far on these nerves, the outcomes were no different. They weren't better. It wasn't helping anything. So if yep. we have direct evidence from a randomized controlled trial saying that we can go in and actually burn away these nerve endings that you're claiming is the pain driver for these people, and it's I'm not. not I'm going to hit pause on that. These guys injected some joints. They injected facet joints and the SI joints, and their own author summary was radio denervation is an unsuccessful treatment. I wouldn't even say that, A, they're effectively destroying the nerve, or that be those tissues were the pain generators. But you pressing on someone's nerve with your hands or supposedly their nerve is more effective than actually going in with radiofrequency denervation. That is proven thus, thus far to not be effective. 
I mean, I'm struggling here how to see that. How is your how are your hands that powerful? With this paper that these guys took low back pain in general and burned some nerves that go to some discrete joints and said, yeah, it's worthless. I you say well, you say discrete joints, but they went in arthroscopically and found stuff. So how are your hands more discrete? Yep. So what's your question? How are your hands more objectively diagnostic? How are they more capable to diagnose objectively than how they were doing it in that study? I mean, that's your argument. Yeah, no, and right. My argument is is the the training. Again, this is with all of these types of studies where you apply a treatment and go, guess what? It doesn't work. Because you're not taking the totality of the patient in front of you into account. I don't know what these people have for provocative, palliative, symptom location, quality, intensity, physical exam procedures, range of motion, and palpation. If I had that, I and again, I would love to do this. I'd love to go up against these other procedures and demonstrate that restoring function and managing load is your best bet. That's the piece conservative care has to offer. I think it's sad when somebody has a problem and you're burning a, a nerve uh, that also isn't going to work. I think it's sad if someone has a tissue damage and it doesn't get diagnosed. That's I think we're all for proper diagnosis. And I get you can disagree with the idea that I'm diagnosing adhesion. What's your post? I don't see what this paper has to do with it. What is your post testing criteria, Dr. Brady, for? Then having addressed, because we haven't even gotten into whether we can actually break up tissue, but what is your post-test for I have now broken down the adhesion? Is it just pain and function, or do you have some other objective measure of the tissue itself to show that you've created a change? Our most objective measure is the change in the range. So if that adhesion is challenged in that range of motion, we're remeasuring that range. And I think regardless of whether you think I'm finding adhesion or not, an increase in a range of motion with less pain. So it's range, it's palpation, and it's symptoms. Well, I think what's important is that uh, there are a lot of things, and I think we probably all agree, that can increase range of motion. As in, I can put a hoodie and sweatpants on and turn the heat up in my car and go on the exercise bike for three minutes and my range of motion is improved. The issue then becomes, I think, maybe from the psychosocial aspect is I am now telling the person that their range of motion has improved because I've broken, I've broken up an adhesion, that that was something that was wrong with them. Um, and now, you know, perhaps they still have more. So is, is range of motion truly a strong enough correlative to say that you have changed the collagen structure of their tissues? So it, that's our primary measurable outcome. And again, we're all going to have a hiccup on it. The palpation of that tissue, when done right, is dramatic. You have so nothing I, to say it can be done right. If I feel this moving, I've trained people to do it, lots of people to do it. So those are my outcomes. And then if it's sustainable, I completely agree that if you go warm up your body, sure, it's going to be more pliable. But when you pull it back off, it isn't. If I'm making a sustainable change in your range, cold, without you running around beforehand or doing anything different or stimulating a reflex, that's valuable. How do you know it's sustainable? Because every time you come in, I can measure this a month later, I can measure this six months later, as long as that range is improved. But the range, range of motion increase is not synonymous with adhesion change. It's not a one-to-one, -one, is it? No, but here that's the thing we're treating, and that's the thing that's then changing. I would say it's the thing you think you're treating. 
Sure. But no, 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 the sure on that is a big semantics. Yeah. Because it's you construct it. Oh, so I, I want to get back to the outcome measure. If the outcome measure is an increase in range of motion, if you come in with a 45 degree straight leg raise and you leave and it's 85 degrees and you feel better, I'm less concerned. We can black box that treatment. Whatever you think that is or isn't, I think we can agree that increase in range of motion and decrease in pain is valuable. So, I mean, Literally. there are studies that show suboccipital release can increase your straight leg raise. Temporarily, yes, not sustainable. Well, but you don't have anything to say yours is sustainable, once again, back to your opinion out of it. Like, yes. we're, we're, I am taking you at your word. Dude, I've never met you before this morning, and I'm supposed to trust you at your word. No, that, not, that's a little look, bit of a farce. Look, this is getting into what I thought it might. My point in being here today was that the chronic pain, any because essentially the blog, if I can oversimplified a little bit, said, yeah, you get hurt, but you heal. Any pain lasting longer than 12 weeks is far more likely to be biopsychosocial. And those are the things you should look at. Well, I mean, you're oversimplifying a lot of things today, I would say, because you have no evidence to support your diagnostic criteria, oh, no objective. Well, let me back to that. Let me just, let's, well, let, let, me, let me finish my statement here. No objectifiable measurement post-treatment to say you affected the thing that you couldn't identify diagnostically beforehand. I mean, this is confirmation bias at its best. You've created this diagnostic criteria with no evidential support, and then you're intervening with the treatment that you've created, and then remeasuring your own previous unsupported diagnostic criteria. Like you, there is no evidential basis for the majority of what you've said today. So I, I don't understand why we're supposed to take your, your own word. So okay, so getting away from the pain science article, why would you trust me? Is that your question? I think that's probably all of our questions let's, today. Let's 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 okay. Let's back up from that. Uh, the issue, obviously, there seems to be a, a divide in what you feel that you can palpate, diagnose, and then how that's related to outcomes. And I think that that seems to be maybe something that's probably going to going to run in circles there. Uh, perhaps we can organize that thought again and, and have a further discussion. But let's switch gears a little bit and, and continue down the structural realm because I think that's going to give a little bit more context. We've heard you talk in the past, and you, you in our email thread leading up to this, mentioned uh, and referenced a paper that we'll cite here that it only you only need 6.2 pounds per square inch of tensile force to break or reduce a collagen uh, matrix or a collagen structure. Can you expound upon that and how you're, where you're getting that data? I don't actually see that in the, in the paper. The paper is tensile mechanical properties of three-dimensional type one collagen extracellular matrices with varied microstructure. The uh, lead author is Blaine Redder, uh, Roder, I apologize on the last name there, et al. It's from 2002. Um, so the claim is 6.2 pounds per square inch of tensile force to break up collagen. Can you expound on that, please? Sure. So in this article, if you haven't pulled up figure seven, you'll see there's, uh, he just takes, this is just in a lab, he takes collagen, puts it on two different plates, and apply the tensile force, which then breaks it. Where are you getting the 6.25 pounds? Yeah, so I just, I, just, I just wanted to establish that that's what's happening. So the 
people listening can say, okay, well, that's we're applying tensile force. Mm-hmm. If we so, come down, well, hold to, on. Can I clarify real quick? This this isn't physiological collagen. This is constructed in a lab from degraded bovine collagen. Yes, it's also okay. much so, less. It's also much less concentrated than uh, than connective tissue t- collagen. But go, Dr. Brady, go ahead. The six point two five. The six point two five. If you look at Figure thirteen, there's the stress and strain. Yes. And he measures the stress in kilopascals. So yeah. if you just do a translation here between the kilopascal and change the units to pounds, at around that 40 mark, you're at around six pounds. So he has this in his graph as the true. And he makes up for the difference between his engineered. You can see the bottom part of that graph. Yep. So he has the true versus the engineered. So I'm just taking his number and changing it from kilopascals to pounds per square inch. And the concentration on that collagen matrix was two, two milligrams per milliliter was the concentration of that collagen matrix. And in on page two, the authors mentioned that the concentration of the collagen matrix in connective tissue is 30 to 40 milligrams per milliliter. So, And that's uh, the difference between the engineering and the true in the graph? The engineering. Go ahead. So, so that's that's on the graph that discrepancy. So from that, the author is going to state that true stress is indicated as a dashed line since it's an approximate, not directly measured quantity. And if we go on, there's been a lot of papers that have measured it directly since then. And there's one from Bueller, Nature Designs Tough Collagen, explaining the nanostructure of collagen fibers that states the fracture strength of the articles we discussed. Just, I just see if I can pull it up if it is. No, it's not. I found it this weekend, but I'm, I'm going to quote it to you verbatim. It says, the fracture strength of an individual triple collagen mo- molecule is 11.2 gigapascals. It differs from the fracture strength of a collagen fibril at 0.5 gigapascals. So we're talking way orders of magnitude stronger, and, and this is substantiated in the article I sent you or sent to the group on the it's molecular assembly and mechanical properties of the extracellular matrix of fibrous protein perspective. And, and I think the article that you presented, you know, if we talk about the tensile stress of wood, it's a little bit different than the tensile stress of pulp. And both of those are still technically wood, but one of them has been degraded. And, and that's what the study that you presented is much more degradation and reassembly into an extracellular matrix. So it can lend itself to study. Um, I mean, I, I would love to take one of those adhesions from this guy's research when he's in there with his arthroscope, cut those out and do the same thing. My point here isn't to have the exact numbers. This was the the point here is to say, when you look at the video of this guy with those adhesions in there, it is not unreasonable to assume that manual therapy forces can break this down. Well, he's I would say from all the other papers sent, it's very unreasonable, and it still goes back to this fundamental misunderstanding of scale. He, well, and he's, yes. he's also slicing those adhesions or uh, whatever we want to call them with a scalpel and, and scissors. The, this the, seems like the, illogical extrapolation. The, the, like six, the 6.25 pounds per square inch. I'm going to go – I actually am going to go back to that number because I think it is significant because of how low it is um, and the narrative that it drives – I'm going to maybe an example of, of like an all out sprint. Um, how do our tissues withstand the loads of daily life if they are able to be, uh, broken up at that, that easily? But 
we can somehow differentiate or selectively reduce certain tissues and not others with manual therapy? And then again, how does exercise or loaded movements not degrade our tissues in a negative manner? How do you differentiate that? Yeah, so the first thing I'd say is that the collagen that a lot of these research papers, not this one, but a lot of the research papers look at, they're looking at, they're like there was the 2,000 pounds article that... Um, Chaudhry et al., the three-dimensional yeah. model in 2008, yep. Right, so what he does, and he says right in there, he's like, look, guys, I'm looking at a healthy IT band, healthy plantar fascia. So absolutely, to your point about there being different concentrations of this, I don't think anybody would watch this endoscopic video and go, sure, those adhesions are as strong as your IT band. Do we know the concentrations of those adhesions? I'd love to. But, but how can you... Yes, no, do we know the concentrations? Just looking, I mean, this is just an observation. Just looking at that, and he says right in there, some of these are really strong and some of these are weak. And also, if you go from nothing to a big adhesion, you've had to go through a smaller one. At some point in that continuum, we're that still operating be, under the uh, assumption that you can find one, diagnose one. And yeah, look, look, we can we can circle back to that every ten minutes if you want. The point of the conversation right here is that collagen tensile force on collagen, particularly this collagen, is weaker. Where compressive force is so, it takes an extraordinary amount of compressive force to break collagen. Well, back to my wood pulp example, I can compress a pile of wood pulp and not do as much to it. But if I try and stretch it, it doesn't work out as well because it's been degraded. Just like in this instance, it's been degraded out of it. And, you know, uh, do you cook a lot, William? I, I got to ask. Like, uh, I'm not a chef, but I cook a fair amount. So do you break down meat? Like, do I break down meat? Yeah. So do you actually prepare the meat for your stews and, and take a knife and cut it up yourself? Sure. Like, have you ever tried to do it with your hands? Cut meat with my hands. No, yeah, just pull the break meat apart, apart the meat apart. Yeah. yeah. So we're looking at a difference between. There's all different kinds of collagen. I think we can agree on that. But so the, the adhesion. So you can't cherry pick though. the one you want to talk about and say six point two five pounds. <laughs> well, of I'm not trying to break collagen in an IT band. That would be absurd. But you're we're, saying you're trying to break collagen elsewhere, but you can't support. So, William, where the dis six point two five pounds? William, is your argument that collagen could not be broken without a knife? Just no, I think I, I think the I, at least I'm still kind of at a loss with Quinn. Maybe you've answered it and I missed it. But if I take one of my athletes who supposedly you have seen and said that they have some type of adhesion, let's say over their sciatic nerve, and I went and you're going to release that with their your hands, I'm assuming by six point two five pounds of force, and I put them under a three hundred pound barbell. How is that not releasing the adhesion? That's the complete difference between tension, compression, what about torsion. What about a sprint, William? What about a sprint? The, the, the hamstring. In order to tension the adhesion, you would have to be sprinting at a 90-degree straight leg raise. So tension on it. So it's it depends on the on the it's a question of tissue mechanics. Okay. You also bone you can compress. But if you rotate it, it's going to break a lot sooner than if you compress it. Uh, are you? Hold on, we just went from tension into rotation. Now we're yeah. yeah. Forces no. are different. You can rotate it with your hands. I'm, I'm... What? What do you say that again for me? So I make sure I understand what you're saying. I'm trying to make the difference. You're saying why doesn't the body break down if all of its collagen is going to be disrupted with six pounds of force? I'm saying the force vectors are extremely important. 
this has to be that six pounds is pure tension because you can compress collagen all day long and it ain't going to move. It's like a rubber band. I can pull it apart with my hands. I can stand on it, drive a truck over it. A rubber band isn't going to compress and degrade. Pulling apart of the tensile uh, strength. Yeah. Back to the figure 13, William, because you're using, I know we're going back to the 6.25, but it is, it is important because you've actually had videos referencing that exact number as well. So figure 13 is a specific concentration of this contrived matrix. It's two, two milligrams per milliliter. And it's a specific concentration. That, and then you have that tensile stress or that failure stress. Are you assuming that an adhesion is that exact concentration? Because that's really the only, go ahead. Yeah, so yes, my, my point with this this is in counter argument to the fact that it takes 2,000 pounds to break an adhesion. This, and I'm not saying it's six pounds, I'm not saying it's two, I'm not saying it's 20. Well, how much is say, it? Yeah. Uh, it's going to depend on the size of the adhesion and the density of the adhesion. Do but you know? it is within the realm of physical loads applied. Can you know the size and density of the adhesion? How? I, I mean, know the size and density of the adhesion. Again, I'm, I feel like we're arguing whether Russell's teapot is purple or orange. <laughs> yeah, it's, and, and <laughs> it's it really is from the entire premise. Like you can't substantiate the existence of adhesion. And, and I thought we were going to talk about pain science, which is why multiple times in the emails I was like, "Guys, are we going to stay on topic?" And you guys seem very eager to talk about adhesion. This is this is pain science, uh, Doctor Brady. It's the bio. Okay. Of the bio it, yeah. So out, out of this, and I would argue it's entirely pain science because essentially pain science would say you don't create problems for your patients where one doesn't exist. And if your entire integrative diagnosis is predicated upon arriving at the proper diagnosis, as you so eloquently state in all your videos, and then multiple times there's been concessions that you can't justifiably find an adhesion. That's, not, I would say, that's not the case. Okay, so how are you finding your adhesion? There is no research to the standard you guys like. There's different standards for professional behavior for getting, because like I said, none of these professions would exist. 90% of medicine wouldn't do anything either. If you're looking for me to tell you how big a particular adhesion is in a particular patient and how strong it is or how dense it is, I don't have that. But what I can how tell do you know how much force to apply? Break it down, it improves their range and it improves their symptoms. Why do you have to say if, that you break it down though? Why can't you would it be why not just say their range of motion improved and their symptoms improved in the short term? What is the benefit of the narrative of the adhesion? Okay, or certainly. What is the benefit of the adhesion narrative for the patient if you are conceding that you don't know how much, you can't measure the diameter and you don't know how much force to apply and it's arguable whether you can identify it in the first place? It's arguable whether I can identify it. What I'm saying is this is the model that fits everything we're finding. So you have limited range, you have altered palpation, and when we change that to full range and normal palpation, your symptoms go down and your range stays improved. So you have to, on some level, adjust for explaining what you're finding. I totally agree. Uh, I think the narrative is the absolute most important thing that can possibly be related to a patient. 
which is why I'm so hung up on this idea of you diagnosing an adhesion with your hands and then knowing exactly how much force to apply without any evidence to support that. And I, it's relevant to pain science because someone's coming in to see you for a pain-based issue, right? And that's why it's relevant to pain science. Otherwise, you would never see that person in your office. Yeah, no one's going to give me money to sit down and have a coffee, right? They have a problem and they want it fixed. They might be better supported to sit down and have a coffee with you and talk to you about their problems over having yeah, unidentifiable no, adhesions and I, diagnosed. And I get that. If we put a number on this, right? So that's the exact point. And we're getting nowhere with the conversation, though, is I think it's tragic if you have a tissue problem and you get pain management for it. And you think it's tragic if I say you have a tissue problem when you don't. Not at all. I, I, I do think it's tragic that if you say that and you don't have evidence to support what you're saying, and you don't at this point. And if you do, I'd love to see it. I just don't see how this conversation can go too much farther into anything because there's no substantiated evidence for your diagnostic criteria. You criteria. And no manual therapist should do anything tomorrow. No, I think it gets down to the narrative that you're disseminating to your patients. That's the most important thing here. If you were saying, I'm going to do this manual therapy technique, and this is going to desensitize the area or make you feel better or anything else other than I'm going to give this a structural name, there may be less argument. There would probably still be argument here between all of us, but there would be much less argument if your narrative wasn't substantiated upon a structural issue that you have no evidential support to be diagnosing. And I would say the flip side is just as dangerous, that there's tons of research that shows that just because someone had a negative MRI or a negative X-ray, they were like, well, then there's nothing structurally or functionally wrong with you. That leap is larger and more dangerous. I'm saying I'm finding a limited range. I'm finding an abnormal palpation finding. I'm treating it. And then when that range improves, the palpation finding improves and your symptoms improve, I'm comfortable labeling that thing adhesion because I have no conception of anything that's better. And it fits with what this is finding. It so fits your narrative. It's a question yes. which danger is bigger. Our words are very dangerous. I mean, I, there's, there was just a systematic review recently that looked at the hydrogenic effects of physicians' words and how we relate things. Ultimately, it matters almost more than anything that we do with our patients. You're supplying a narrative that is false. And outside of a false narrative, on top of that, you're creating some type of dependency and classical conditioning to your patients. We have a treat and discharge model. There's no dependency here. I'm not telling you you need me. I'm telling you you have a problem. They and need you to release their adhesion. It they sounds need to like do my job, just like they need a surgeon to do surgery. That's yeah, not we look at all the evidence for surgery, and it's not as efficacious either. And we go right. at them for the same argument. We're like, not singling you out. Yeah, you don't get to like move it onto another profession. Like it's the same. That's part of the issue. Is your narrative, your logic has to hold across the board, and we don't get to hold surgeons to a different standard than ourselves. I mean, as I, I've seen you talk in videos, and you like to refer to yourself as doctor, and I think that's fine. But in that instance, you have to see that you're with a doctorate and chiropractic a doctor. Well, so, because, I, so, does, so does Mike. If you're teaching, you need to make sure that what we're teaching is correct. And if not, we really need to approach that with caution instead of certainty. And I would argue this certainty enough to trademark a technique can be dangerous because now everything starts being viewed through that lens. Okay, so what would you say to all of the ART providers out there? There's about 8,000 people that have been trained, all of the Graston providers. Um, it's it's funny you say that because a question I had down to talk to you with today is, uh, how are you any different than ART? 
And that's a that's an awesome question. I get that all the time. I taught ART for 10 years. I developed this because that was massively lacking in the diagnostic component and in the treatment component. And to be honest, when you ask that question, I want to address the question you asked. I say the exact same thing to them because I hold myself to a standard beyond being able to say, this is my opinion. I need to be able to epistemically support my opinion. And if I can't justify what I'm doing beyond, hey, guys, this is what I like to do, then it's bullshit. Like, I'm just going to call it what it is. And And the one piece I have to support what I'm doing that I can't share with you because I don't, I'm not a researcher. And like I said, I would be thrilled to research this. So we're going to go back in this circle. So if all you can practice is what you have in a placebo controlled blinded paper, which a lot of these things that they're not, or they're small, we can get in there and get into the weeds on that, but then there is no manual medicine. Half of it disappears if that's the standard. And maybe there's thing that's fine. I think there's a gross misunderstanding of pain science currently in this conversation because we could readily talk about some examples that are occurring in medicine with open label placebo treatment that's actually getting a pretty good effect. Um, so I think you're thinking that because we're saying we want evidence that all we want is a double blind placebo controlled trial when we have good evidence to say the pain can be treated with open label placebos. It's not a matter of what the treatment is so often in chronic pain based issues. It's a matter of the narrative being supplied to the patient and the expectations that I'm setting with the patient, just like the Peterman article I sent you. If I have therapeutic alliance with the patient, they trust me, and we're confident in our game plan, I can treat them with almost anything, open-label placebo or not, which I would argue what you're currently treating with is nothing more than placebo, but we don't have any evidence to say that it would even be better than that. What I did want to point out before, because I'm running out of time here, um, one of the articles you sent over, the Comprehensive Review in Pain by Peterman, in the... Yes, I just referenced it. Yep. So uh, in the abstract there, the last two sentences, um, subset analyses indicate medium to large effects on experimental and acute procedural pain and small effects on chronic pain. In conclusion, patients can be relieved with expectation interventions, particularly verbal suggestions for acute procedural pain. So you're ta- when you're talking in your blog about pain lasting longer than 12 weeks, this guy's saying it only works for acute pain. That's evidence to support acute, not chronic, which was the opposite of the blog post. If you can give me a soundbite on that. I would argue out of that, and Mike, I, I want to go first on this. Sure. This is a common theme out of the pain science discussion. It, it's a concession that we're still learning what we're doing. We don't have all the answers. And right now, we need to base it off of small effect size as opposed to non-substantiated opinion. Small effect acute versus chronic. Well, it still says small effect for chronic. Or verbal suggestions for acute procedural pain was found to be effective. Small effects on chronic pain. Yeah. So there you go. Small effects. Okay. And, and, And I'm much more comfortable, and I use those words volitionally, Mm-hmm. working off of small effect size under a concession that we don't know what we're doing. And part of conceding that we don't have that kind of certainty right now is the fact that it inspires me to keep looking for it instead of trademarking a technique and selling it to people. I haven't stopped looking for answers either. Well, there seems to be a lot of certainty in, in your claims. You're certain that you can find an adhesion. You're certain that you can palpate it. 
Yes, of that I am certain. Okay. Well, the evidence would say that's unsubstantiated. Yes. Okay. I, if, huh. if this were court, I would rest my case. Yeah, I, I just don't know. I'm not here to say that I am not here to argue that adhesion is researched other than the couple of things I provided here. I intended to do a conceptual basis that these things happen and just to say that that creates chronic pain. And if a pain practitioner was unaware of adhesion causing chronic pain, so I'm saying that the original blog here. How does it cause chronic pain? The patients in this case series have chronic pain. And then when he did the surgery, the chronic pain was reduced significantly. 21 out of those people who finished were on opioids. And at the end, only two were. The average pain was six and a half and went down to 2.4. And again, yes. With a standard deviation of about two. So that's going to be the range. So, so I mean, I just talked about a paper where we can get pain reduction with an open label placebo. I mean, there's plenty of ways to get pain reduction, but I think utilizing the word causative adhesion, chronic pain, is a very slippery slope that's unsubstantiated. I, I we don't even have evidence to say it's highly correlated to. No pain, as you guys would, I'm sure, clearly agree. Pain has. There are a lot of things that go into whether a patient is in pain. Lots of things, right? So in the biopsychosocial model, we have to have methods to look at the bio. And part of what I'm hearing is, well, if the research says that there's really nothing in the bio category, then it gets thrown out. That's my concern. That's my primary point in having the discussion today. What's your we need better tools to assess the bio. Well, what's your reference, Dr. Brady? How did you, I don't know the answer, did you shadow the surgeons and do a, a palpation and then have somebody do an image and see that you got a change and then you you repeated that and then you were, you were had more confidence doing it in practice? What is your reference? Because I'm sure people ask you that. You say, we need better, we need better criteria. Where are you getting your information? Is it all anecdote? Is there... It's the repeatability of doing this over those 19 years. And I know that sounds like the same guru model. So I don't have published anything to say that. And all I'm trying to do is balance that with, that doesn't mean you can throw it out. And no one's saying, well, I, I'm entirely saying you throw out adhesions because it's unsubstantiated. Yeah. But no one is saying to throw out the bio side. If you have osteoarthritis, it matters. It's contributory. It's not a cause. It can contribute. And that semantic distinction is huge. And nowhere in Mike's blog was he saying it doesn't matter. He was saying it's not the cause. It can contribute. And that, and that distinction is big. And I mean, yes, I it's just less likely. Less likely is contributory, not causative. And when we opened up this podcast, I said that exact statement. I, I said the exact same thing. That it is less likely to be a correlate to chronic pain development. And this does seem like semantics, but as we've reiterated over and over and over again in this podcast today, when it comes to narratives, that is all centered around semantics and the word we utilize to treat our patients. 
I mean, what would it take for you to, and this is a question we should have asked entering into this discussion, what would it take for you to reconsider your stance on diagnostic criteria for adhesions and treatment for adhesions? I would need to see something that makes more sense than that. Well, what would you need to see that would... That explains what's happening in my patients every day better than this. What would you need to see to, not something better, but simply to disprove that narrative? What type of evidence would you need to see to show you that you cannot palpate and or treat an adhesion? Yeah, I'd start with something simpler. Show me that they don't exist in the body. So you want the absence of evidence as your operational tool currently. There is no evidence to say that it doesn't exist. Therefore, you have a model created or predicated on that they do exist. And until someone proves you wrong, that's your operation. And this is, you guys are good at overstating that. I'm saying my evidence is my expert experience in limited ranges, palpating the tissue. So we can get stuck on the palpation, but for you to go back and say there's no evidence, we've established that. So yes, there is no published controlled trial for that. And I would love to do one. If that's not enough evidence for you to do it, I understand that. But you still have evidence with it. But this, this brings down the whole field of clinical treatment. This brings down the whole field of clinical treatment. If we don't hold each other to the same standard across the board, then this allows for guruism to develop. This allows for false narratives to develop. This allows for erroneous healthcare dollars to be spent, unnecessary dependency of patients on clinicians. This is perpetuating the chronic pain cycle that we're currently trying to deal with. And I understand this. So I got a couple minutes here. Okay. So I said, oh, so all I want to end with is this, that you're right. You guys have this standard up here for the tissue model and it gets underutilized that's my perspective. Therefore, what fills that space is the pain model. And I'm saying I would flip that on its head, that this, there are more physical sources of pain in my patients than not. So chronic pain, someone could read your blog and say, you know, chronic pain most of the time isn't due to a tissue problem. That's what I would completely disagree with. I'd say most of the time it is due to a tissue problem, but the training and skills are lacking to identify and correct that tissue problem. Well, and that's the only one that can provide those skills. Yeah. And I would argue you're disagreeing with the entirety of the pain science research field that we currently have, which you're entitled to do by all means. And you're entitled to create your own method that's against all of the research evidence currently, and you're entitled to profit of it. That's the world we live in. But I think it needs to be abundantly clear to people that what you're saying is completely unsupported in the research evidence at this time. And that what's said in the blog currently is how the pain science research world views the treatment of chronic-based pain. That's a nice way to try to sneak in some things that we didn't get to talk about, so I'll just disagree with it in general. Well, here, here's what I would say since we're kind of getting close to closing. Our position is that the bio does matter. It can be a contributory mechanism. But if you look at most evidence, the psych side matters just as much, if not more, in most instances. I agree that that's what so, we're talking about. So, if, if I may, this is where we start getting into semantics and communication. And, and where a lot of this stemmed from was the original claim after Mike's blog that our claims showed a lack of training and misunderstanding. And yes, that's semantics, but that also is you guys say, or your stance out of that initial comment 
was that we're not adequately trained. When we start talking about what constitutes proper training, a lot of it seems very unsubstantiated and based upon your validation. And as I conceded earlier, I'd never spoken to you before today, and it's pretty hard for me to need your validation without having a conversation you being able to back up what you say. Yeah, I, I think if you came in with some decent amount of evidence that we hadn't seen before um, that was supporting your stance, you know, no one is above reproach and they should not be above reproach. And if you make a ton of claims as you are, you this need to what, substantiate. And this is what happened. And that's why this got off track the way it did. I would love to sit down and talk about things I have research for. OK, so we, the pain science stuff, modic changes in the lumbar spine correlate to low back pain. Yeah, but if you look at the Hutton paper, it shows those can be reversible and they're also highly correlated to being a smoker and being obese, which gets back to a chicken or egg question of what causes what? Is it the lifestyle or is it the actual structural change? Sure. Good question. It's going to be different for every patient. Well, it is. Yeah. No, you go. Go, Derek. Well, it still goes back to contributes and causes. And I will fully concede with you there is evidence that having motor changes contributes to the possibility of low back pain. Yes. So you can't say causes. Like, this is a major semantics divide. Yes. yes. And that's my, yeah. And that's what we started with. And that's what we're ending with. It's the same thing. I don't, there's, I didn't, your papers didn't say that treating people with, a pain science approach, and I don't know what your diagnostic criteria are either. All you have here is three papers that this one shows long-term doesn't work, which you conceded to. This one is about radio frequency, not about managing with pain science. And this one's stratifying, stratifying low back patients in the different categories. None of this supports what you're doing any more than what I say I'm doing. Well, I would say it supports it in that if you look at the start trial in particular, there's an entire subset of people that show to get better on their own. And, and what it advocates for is if you start getting into the stratified, medium, and high risk, there is much more of a psychological component to it. And, and I would extrapolate that out to say there may be some moving down of the bio side of that, considering one of our biggest indicators of whether you're going to develop chronic pain has whatever to do with structural pathology, it has to do with your disposition towards the injury. And, and that's what the START trial really garners out. If you start falling into medium risk and high risk, that has nothing to do with your image, with your structural diagnosis. That's entirely related to your disposition. So what are your criteria? What are your diagnostic criteria for diagnosing somebody with and I don't even know what you guys call it yet. It's catastrophizing. I've seen the word a lot. Pain science gets thrown around, but that's not a specific thing somebody has. You don't have pain science. Fear avoidance beliefs. Yeah. You have fear avoidance beliefs. You have pain catastrophizing, not mm -hmm. catastrophizing. Um, you, you have anxiety. You have depression. And there, there are subscales that relate to all of that. And I, and I, kind of on a good note, I would completely agree that there are anxiety scales to determine how anxious you are. And the more anxious you are, the more anxiety you have, the more any bad event in your life is magnified. Mm -hmm. It's not and, just pain. But. And that's been a premise of our entire pain science argument, though, is 
that if you start giving people structuralist diagnosis that are unsubstantiated, you're not really decreasing their anxiety, you're giving them problems. Unless it's a problem they actually have, then Which you can't but you can't substantiate that statement, yeah, no, sir. That's so no, so you guys are getting the adhesion thing mixed up with everything else. If you have a physical problem that can be diagnosed and determined, then that patient deserves a label for that problem. Well, and, and this gets at a really good argument that's actually occurring throughout medicine right now. Is currently is diagnosis and how much does the diagnosis actually matter? I mean, you're making it sound like it's paramount, but I think that there's a sufficient amount of research at this point to call into question a lot of that and to say that uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't always matter necessarily what we're trying to quote unquote diagnose necessarily. And that's a huge discussion that's going on is because we're an insurance-based model, the narrative that gets applied to insurance companies versus the narrative that gets applied to the patient. It's part of that paper by Kapchnik with the open-label placebo about what should we be telling our patients um, as far as that stuff goes. I mean, I think it's a great argument. Yeah, so, and I know you got we got to get out of here, Dr. Brady. So, first of all, you know, th- this type of thing is not easy. It's not easy to come on a podcast with three people who you've never spoken to before and, and, uh, you know, support yourself. So we appreciate it. I hope our listeners appreciate it. Thank you very much for being on the show. We started the show with the idea of, of diagnosis, you know, and, and hopefully it wasn't harped. People didn't feel, or you didn't feel like we were harping on minutia in regards to palpation and, and being hung up on the word adhesion. It's if, that is the diagnosis and palpation is the way that you diagnose it or one diagnostic criteria, then it's important to talk about. Um, and we, we appreciate the discussion. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll end right there. I don't really know a good way to, to outro this thing, but thanks guys. All right. Yeah. Cool, man. I appreciate the opportunity to have the discussion. I hope people listening will just have more to think about. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's what it's all about. It's always our goal. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys.